message from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information, please visit trinitygracesa.org. This morning, we are going to begin a new sermon series that is going to take us through the fall season on Sunday mornings here at Trinity Grace. Over the next few months, we're going to be spending our time looking at the different parables that Jesus tells us in the gospel accounts. And a parable, as you might know, is a type of story. It's a kind of like an extended metaphor using concrete everyday objects to illustrate abstract truths. A parable is a story that contains a spiritual point. It's a simple story that has a deeper meaning. And if you've ever read the gospel accounts, primarily Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you've likely noticed that Jesus told lots of stories. In fact, it was one of his favorite ways of communicating. Jesus uses parables or simple stories to illustrate deep truths about the kingdom of God, to illustrate deep truths about the beauty and the depths of God's grace, to illustrate deep truths about the nature and necessity of God's judgment in this world. In fact, Jesus uses parables all the time. He loved to tell stories. Someone might ask Jesus a question or someone might make a statement that required a response from Jesus and Jesus wouldn't answer or respond directly. Instead, what he often did was told a story. And it's an interesting method of communication. In fact, if someone answered your questions or responded to a statement that you made by telling a story... On one hand, it might help with your understanding, but on the other hand, it might confuse you even more. And in many ways, that's often what happened when Jesus told his stories. Some came away with more clarity, while others left more confused. The parables that Jesus tells have a cryptic nature to them. Some people get the deeper meaning that Jesus intends while others don't. And that's actually Jesus's intention in using parables as an avenue of communication. In Matthew chapter 13, Christ's disciples approach him and they directly ask him why he speaks in parables. And Jesus responds by saying this, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance, but whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In other words, Jesus speaks in parables so that his followers might understand more of what he wants them to understand while those who oppose him are left further in the dark. And this is a wise way of communication because it actually bought Jesus time. It bought him time in his earthly ministry. His hour had not yet come, meaning that his ministry wasn't yet complete. And he used parables because they seemed fairly benign. But they were a lot like bombs that haven't yet gone off, that he left in people's minds and in people's hearts. Those who grasped them began to understand the radical teachings of Jesus, yet those who didn't understand the deeper spiritual meaning of the parables could write Jesus off as a harmless storyteller. Look, Jesus loved to tell stories, and we get the chance to look at them over the next few months. And over the month of August, we're going to be camping out in Luke chapter 15 primarily. 
Luke chapter 15 is often referred to as the lost and found department of the New Testament because in this chapter, Jesus tells stories about lost things being found. And it's a chapter that contains perhaps the most well-known parable that Jesus ever told, the parable of the prodigal son. And we're going to be spending three weeks looking at that parable more in depth beginning next week. But this morning, we're going to look at the first 10 verses of chapter 15, where Jesus tells a double parable. And it's a parable that's intended to communicate what the gospel of grace is all about. If you want to know what brings God joy, if you want to know what Jesus came to do, if you want to know what Christianity is all about, then Luke chapter 15 is a parable for you. The first 10 verses. So please follow along as I read from Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that's lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, doesn't light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is God's word and he gives it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know him. When I was in high school in preparation for going on an overseas mission trip, I can't really remember where we were heading, but we were heading somewhere overseas for a week-long trip. My church invited students to move through a program known as Evangelism Explosion. Uh, It was a material uh, that they wanted us to, to learn in an effort to get better at practical evangelism. And for those who are unfamiliar with Evangelism Explosion, it's a ministry that trains people to share their faith with those who don't know yet know Jesus. And you learn small parts of the gospel each week, and you also learn Bible verses and specific illustrations that help you share the gospel with other people. And while the course itself isn't perfect, there's some things that you could critique, it's helpful material for a group of high school students that needed some practical training on evangelism. In the material, if you've ever done it, you know that it's got two main diagnostic questions that you're supposed to ask to get the conversation started. And one of those diagnostic questions that you're supposed to ask is, if you were to die tonight and stand before God and he asks why he should let you into heaven, what would you say? You know, a real light get to know you question that you're supposed to ask to complete strangers, right? The method is actually a legitimate critique of the EE material, but that question, I've never forgotten it. Never forgotten it. There may be better ways to phrase the question, but it's one that directly gets to the point, even if it's awkward. If you were to die tonight and stand before God and he asks you why he should let you into heaven, what would you say? I wonder how you'd answer that question. 
I wonder how your neighbors and your friends would answer that question. I would imagine some popular answers would sound like this. Because I've tried to live a good life. Because I went to church and I served and I gave away money. Because I was a good husband or I was a good wife. Because I was a good father or a good mother. Because I tried to be nice to others and treat them the way I want to be treated. Because I never did anything to harm anyone else. Because I'm a good person. Because I worked for justice in this world. Because I cared about others. These are all answers we might hear from friends and neighbors. You might not believe it, but those are what you'd hear with folks, answers that you'd hear with, from folks who are unfamiliar with the gospel. And it makes sense that these would be the answers because we live in a meritocracy in many ways. We live in a culture where you work hard, you prove yourself, you do what's right, and you get rewarded. And it's not crazy to take that mentality of merit that we operate with on a daily basis and apply it to our relationship with God. To believe that it's all about us working toward God, to believe that it's up to us to find him, to believe that we can garner his attention and his affections with our good behavior, that we can find God if we search hard enough. And it's not just our friends who are unfamiliar with the gospel that are prone to adopt this mentality. Followers of Jesus do it just as well. We can forget the gospel. You and I can easily slip into believing that God deals with us according to merit. If we obey and if we love and if we give, then we feel like God loves us more. But on the other hand, if we mess up or we get angry or we don't read our Bible and pray the way that we think that we should, then God doesn't like us as much. We're a group of people who want to prove ourselves, who live in a meritocracy. And that works in our lives and with other people, but it does not work with God. It's not the way that God relates to us. God's kingdom isn't a meritocracy, at least not one that's based on your merit. It's a merit-based mentality that actually compels Jesus to tell the parables that we find in Luke chapter 15. And the setting's so important to understand these parables. And we see the setting of these parables in verses 1 and 2 of our passage. Take a look. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus... And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. The setting consists of two groups. You've got the Pharisees and the scribes on one hand and the tax collectors and the sinners on the other. The Pharisees and the scribes, they did not appreciate the fact that Jesus associated with and even seemed to like and welcome tax collectors and sinners. You see, tax collectors and sinners were a group of people who were viewed as immoral, unclean, not religious, traitors to God and country. And Jesus was attracted to this group of people, which is clear as you read the gospel accounts. And not only did Jesus preach to this group of people, we see time and time again that Jesus ate with them. He sat at their table and they sat at his And it's important to know that table fellowship was a serious thing, especially in first century Middle Eastern culture. I mean, even today, it's serious. In the Middle East, a nobleman may feed people in need out of generosity, but they won't eat with the needy. They won't share the same table with the folks that they're serving. 
And this is because meals are a sign of acceptance. They're an intimate expression of fellowship. And Jesus was often the guest at the table of tax collectors and sinners, and he was the host many times as well. And this desire for intimate fellowship with sinners, the fact that he ate with sinners, it upset the Pharisees and the scribes. They couldn't believe that Jesus wanted to be with people like that. It offended their cultural and their theological sensibilities. In fact, you see in verse 2 of our passage that the Pharisees and scribes, they grumbled over this. They muttered over this. They murmured under their breath. They didn't like the love and acceptance that Jesus was extending to people who clearly didn't merit love and acceptance. And it's the grumbling of the Pharisees and the scribes that triggers Jesus to tell these stories. Jesus answers their grumbling with a set of stories. And these stories really highlight what Jesus is all about. These stories are central to who Jesus is. They reveal the love and grace of God in a beautiful way. And as we look at the first two stories Jesus tells in Luke 15 about a lost sheep and a lost coin, we're going to break them down by looking at the salt, by looking at the seeker, and by looking at the result. Those are our three points this morning, the salt, the seeker, the result. First, let's spend a few minutes looking at the salt. As we look at the parables of Jesus, it's important to keep in mind that there's normally one main overarching point in each parable, but we can understand the main point better by looking at the objects that are found in the story. Understanding the objects actually helps us appreciate the main point more. And in this double parable, we've got two objects that have been lost and are being sought after. You've got a sheep and you've got a coin. And it's important to understand that Jesus is using these objects to represent us in this parable. We're supposed to identify with the sheep and the coin in these stories. And in his first story, Jesus tells of a sheep that's lost. And we tend to think of sheep as warm and fluffy. They're kind of cute. A sheep is an animal that if you saw it on the side of the road, it might bring a smile to your face. But when Jesus likens us to sheep, it's not really cute in his mind. It's more like a well-intended spiritual insult from the mouth of Jesus. The original listeners of this story would have understood that a sheep is a stupid animal. It's an animal that loses its direction continually. When you find a lost sheep, it's not like a dog that will follow you home. You've got to wrestle a lost sheep to the ground. You've got to tie it up and then you've got to put it on your shoulders and carry it home. Sheep are unable to survive on their own. They need constant care and protection. A sheep can contribute nothing to its rescue. The shepherd has to do everything. In fact, a lost sheep would have been a dead sheep. In the second story, Jesus tells of a coin that's lost. Now, a coin in that agrarian society where many people would have lived and worked on a barter system, I'll give you some bread if you give me some eggs, is a rare commodity. A coin, like any form of money in that day, would have been precious. And the term used for coin in the Greek is drachma, which would have been about a day's wage. This lady had lost a day's wage by losing this coin, which would have been a big deal for a normal person in that culture. This coin was valuable, but this coin was also lifeless. It it couldn't even bleat like a sheep in order to be found. A lost coin would have been a dead asset. 
And by using these two objects, a sheep and a coin, Jesus is trying to teach us something about ourselves. He's trying to get us to understand that we are all lost. And no one likes to be lost. It's not a good feeling to be lost. But to a certain extent, we're all lost. Both Christian and non-Christians can be lost. We can be lost in our unrighteousness, and we can be lost in our self-righteousness, as we'll see in weeks to come. We can be lost in our morality, and we can be lost in our immorality. I wonder if you've ever seen a picture of yourself and been kind of shocked. You know, you see a picture of yourself that's taken maybe at a party or with friends or on vacation and you take a look at the picture and you think to yourself, that can't be how I really look. Like, that's not really me. My hair's not really that flat, is it? I don't really have a double chin, do I? Is my forehead really that big? And whether we like it or not, this parable is intended to show us a picture of ourselves, It's not as harsh as the law, but we're intended to see ourselves in this parable. We're all lost and we all need to be thoroughly rescued. We're all lost and we need to be found. And look, from the very beginning, this has been the case. Remember back in Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve fell into sin and they began to feel shame and guilt for the first time, what did they do? They got lost. They ran away from the very God they used to spend time with. They hid. And do you remember the question that God asks in Genesis chapter 3 when he comes to the Garden of Eden and he can't find Adam and Eve? As Adam and Eve are hiding, God asks, where are you? Where are you? God goes looking for his lost treasure there in the garden. And in this parable, Jesus is reminding us that he's never stopped looking. Never stopped asking, where are you? Which leads us to turn and spend a few minutes looking at the seeker, at the one who sets out to find his lost possessions. Not only do we see objects lost in this double parable, we also see two characters that seek out the lost. We see a shepherd and we see a woman. And the first thing we notice is that Jesus likens himself here to these two figures and he's likening himself to lowly and despised figures in that culture. While shepherds are painted in a positive light through the scriptures, you need to know that they were not likable as real people in the first century. Shepherds were rough. They were kind of dirty. They were normally thought of as thieves because they had a reputation of stealing other people's things and allowing their sheep to eat other people's property. On top of that, women weren't valued in that culture much. They didn't have a voice. They were seen as second-class citizens. They had no real power. And it's the despised shepherd and the lowly woman who Jesus identifies with in this parable, which would have further infuriated the Pharisees and the scribes. What's more, we see that the shepherd and the woman in this parable, they're not passive in how they go about their lost possessions. They are very active. They do not wait for their possessions to return to them. After all, the sheep would never come back and the coin was lifeless. Unless the seeker went after the lost possessions, there was absolutely no hope, which is also true in our relationship with God, isn't it? He's the one who takes the initiative to find us. And if he didn't, we'd be lost forever, as good as dead. Now, what are some characteristics that we see from the seeker in the search that they're on? First, I want you to notice we should see the burden of restoration. 
it's not easy for this shepherd to go out and retrieve this lost sheep. First, we see that he leaves the 99 to go after one lost sheep. And we think that's the worst ministry strategy anyone's ever created. To leave 99 to go after one, why would the shepherd risk his life and spend his time going after the one lost sheep? And on top of that, when he finds the sheep, he's got to wrangle it to the ground. He's got to tie its legs. He throws it on his shoulder and he's got to carry it all the way back home. There would have been so many resources spent for just one sheep. Yet you get the sense that it's all worth it for the shepherd. He comes home and he invites everyone to celebrate and rejoice with him because he found his lost sheep. There was a great burden involved in the restoration on the part of the seeker, yet you get the sense that it was all worth the effort. Now look at the woman who's searching for her lost coin. We see that she lights a lamp and she keeps sweeping the house until she finds her lost coin. Her diligence is really highlighted there in those few verses. She doesn't give up until what she lost is found. And when she finds it, her joy overshadows all the energy that she expended. She calls to her neighbors and invites them to rejoice because she found what she had lost. Both of the seekers demonstrate for us what the gracious love of God looks like. The seeker goes to endless trouble and great expense and risk to themselves in order to recover their lost property. The seeker does anything to bring their lost possessions home, even though those possessions didn't do anything to earn such love and such concern. You get the sense that the lost possession is the most important thing in the seeker's mind, the object of the seeker's affection and energy. And now I wonder... Is that how you see yourself this morning? Do you view yourself as Christ's treasure? This parable reminds us that Jesus gladly leaves his comfort and his safety and he goes to find his lost possessions, which are us. This parable reminds you that you're the object of Christ's affection and energy and he'll do anything to bring you home. Jesus goes and gets his lost possessions. And what do we see once the lost items have been found, once they've been brought back home? What is the result? Our last point here this morning. Well, the result is a word that's seen all over this passage, and that word is joy. Joy. We see the joy of the shepherd in verse 6. Look at it. And when the shepherd comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Look at the woman in verse 9. When she had found her coin, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Joy is the result of these successful searches. It's joy. You also see that it's not only joy experienced on earth over lost things being found. You see in verse 7 and verse 10 that there's joy in heaven and before the angels of God over lost things being found. Joy is all over this passage. Remember the Pharisees and tax collectors, they're sitting there muttering, grumbling, because Jesus is eating with sinners. They're grumbling over lost things being found, but Jesus is not muttering. He's not grumbling. He's rejoicing because what was lost is being found. Jesus is taking great joy in the restoration of these people 
back to the community of God. Joy's all over these two parables. In fact, another way you could translate the word gospel is joy news. It's joy news, joyful news. It's news of what God has done that brings great joy. And in this parable, we're invited to share in God's joy over found sinners, to share in the joy of heaven, to party like Jesus when the lost are found. And look, this parable is also inviting us to join in on God and his mission, to be more like Jesus as we have an outward face as individuals and as a church, as we seek out the lost in our lives. Like Jesus, we're on a search and rescue mission as individuals and as a community here in the city of San Antonio. In these parables, we see each seeker leave the majority to go after the minority. And I just couldn't get this out of my mind this week when I thought about it. The shepherd leaving the 99 and going after the one that was lost. The woman leaving the nine that she had to go after the one that she had lost. And like we mentioned earlier, that seems like the worst ministry strategy ever. Think of all the resources and all the energy that's spent for just the one. Why would we do that? Why would we as a church leave the 99 to go after the one? That doesn't sound sustainable. It doesn't sound um, like it's that good of a focus. Wouldn't it be better to focus on the 99 who are here, who float the boat, so to speak? Why not just enjoy what we have? Why not focus on who's here? Why go to all the trouble of searching for the lost sheep and the lost coin? Well, we want to do it because it's what Jesus came to do, and we want to do it because it's what Jesus did for us. We follow Jesus in searching for lost things because that's our story. I mean, aren't you glad that someone came after the one when the one lost was you? We once were lost, but we've been found. And because we've been found, we move out to find others and invite them into this beautiful community that Jesus is building. And as we search for the lost, what we're doing is we're following in the way of Christ. I love how Tim Keller puts it. It's there at the beginning of your bulletin when he says, every religion has a prophet who is pointing people to God. Jesus is the only one who says, I am God and I am coming to find you. And he takes so much joy in doing it. He takes so much joy in finding you and now he invites us to share in his joy as we go out and join him in his mission of finding lost things. And I do not want us as a church to be the ones caught grumbling at that joyful mission. We should enter it joyfully as we follow our master. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord Jesus, we are thankful for the way that you have come to seek and to save the lost, for the way that at great expense to yourself, you have brought us back home into relationship with you and with one another. And we pray this morning that as we consider how deeply you've loved us, that it would compel us to move out and share that same love with our friends and our neighbors. We pray that you would create opportunities for us to do that, that you would give us boldness as we engage in relationship, and that your spirit would go before us as we follow your lead in seeking and pointing others that are lost to you. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.